one of the things I love about City Light Church is that we're a people who take the Bible seriously. We really believe that the Bible tells the story that is the true story of humanity. And part of that story is that the world we live in right now is not the world the way it's supposed to be. That God actually created the world with a good intention for it, but that since then we've chosen to build our lives on things other than him. And as a result, the world doesn't function the way that God created it to. Uh, One part of living in a world that's not the way it's supposed to be is that we are sometimes the victim of wrongdoing. People sin against us, people do evil against us. And what I want to start this morning by doing is asking you to consider, how do you respond when you're wronged by someone else, when you're on the other side of wrongdoing? I want to contend that our most common response is to use whatever power we have to get back at the people who have wronged us. So maybe you've seen a scene or you can picture a scene in a movie where there's a bigger, stronger guy and a weaker guy comes up to him and punches him in the mouth. What's the bigger guy going to do? He's going to punch him back, right? He's going to use his power to get back at this weaker guy. He's not going to let him come up to him and just punk him like that. He's going he's to assert his dominance back over this person. Or maybe it's your words, right? Someone insults you, but you know some dirt about this person too. What are you going to do? Are you going to let them just insult you? No, you're going to use the knowledge you have of them. You're going to use your words to get back at them, to come back over the top and hit them with a good comeback or something. <clears throat> Maybe it's the relationship you have with this person. You know, they value your relationship. And so when they wrong you, what you can do is you can withhold your friendship. So I'm just not going to talk to this person anymore. I'm not going to invite them to things. I'm not going to be around them. I'm going to give them the cold shoulder and get back at them that way. Uh, or maybe you know some other people that you could hurt their reputation with. So you'll talk about them behind their back and make sure other people know the wrong that they've done to you. That's kind of a power that you have over them. You can change others' opinions of them. Um, But in other cases, it may be that people are too weak to get back at those who have wronged them. This is often the case in systems of oppression, right? Where someone who's more powerful in a position, maybe in the government or in a family or something, can keep others down and continue to do wrong to them because there's nothing they can really do to respond. And that tends to bug us. And we're going to see later there's a really, actually a very good reason for that. Um, But also, the thing that we usually want for a person who's in that situation is for them to be able to get enough power so that they can rise to the top and get back at the people who have wronged them. There's whole movies that the plot is basically based on this. Uh, One of these is The Count of Monte Cristo, based on a book. Uh, At the beginning of the Count of Monte Cristo, uh, Edmund Dantes is about to be promoted to a captainship of the ship that he is a part of, and he's about to marry his lifelong love. But when one of his friends, supposed friends, finds out about this, he becomes jealous, and he, along with a few others, cook up a plan to have Edmund wrongly prosecuted on false charges. And he's convicted and sentenced to life in exile at this nasty prison called the Chateau d'If. And the guy who, his friend, who had him sentenced and sent away, becomes the captain of the ship and marries his lifelong love, uh, Edmund's lifelong love. So Edmund has been wronged here, and he has nothing he can do about it. He's stuck on this prison in the middle of nowhere. And the rest of the movie is basically about how Edmund seeks to climb the ladder to get enough power for himself that he can exact vengeance on all the people who have wronged him. So while he's in prison, he learns from this priest all the, how to fight, he learns how to read, he learns uh, how to manage money, and the priest eventually tells him where he can find a big bunch of treasure that he can then use to get his revenge. So he 
cooks up an escape, gets out of prison, finds the treasure, eventually becomes the Count of Monte Cristo, accumulates incredible wealth, and executes his plan to have vengeance on the people who have wronged. I'm sorry if I'm ruining this for anyone. I realize maybe some of you haven't seen it, but it, it's it's widely known movie. Um, so he, he gets his revenge in the end. And the whole time you're watching it, you're loving it. You're just like, this is awesome. You know, you're cheering for him the whole way to get the power that he needs to be able to get revenge on the people who have wronged him. We all seem to think that if we've been wrong, the best thing to do is to have enough power to get back at the people who did it to us. What we're going to see in the passage that we're looking at today is something very different. We're going to see someone who actually had all the power and had all the opportunity to exact vengeance on his enemies, who had the power to defeat those who had wronged him and chose instead to show mercy. We're looking at a story of David's interactions with some of his enemies. We've been in the book of 1 Samuel now for some time here at City Light. And to catch you up a little bit on the background, the last couple of weeks we've been looking at the interactions between two guys named Saul and David. So Saul was made king of Israel when Israel first asked for a king. But because of his disobedience and unwillingness to repent, the kingship has been removed from Saul at this point and given to David. So David's been anointed king and promised that he will be on the throne after Saul. But in the meantime, Saul continues to function as king. And when David comes on the scene, one of the ways he does that is by defeating one of Israel's greatest enemies, the Philistines, and one particularly big soldier of theirs named Goliath. So David goes out and defeats him, and as a result, Saul puts David in charge of his armies. And David goes out and wins all these victories on behalf of Saul and for the people of Israel. So Saul and David are totally on the same team. David's not trying to take the throne from Saul. He's basically just going out fighting Saul's battles for him and winning them. Any king would be grateful to have a commander like David. But then something happens. The people in the town start to grumble. They start to talk. So they say, you know, Saul, he's killed some people, but David, now that guy's the real warrior. And Saul gets wind of this and starts to get jealous. The people around him are telling him, you know, David's David's after you. David's trying to get your throne. You need to take care of him. So Saul starts to hatch this plan to kill David. And for the last few chapters of 1 Samuel, the story has basically gone in the direction of Saul's pursuit of David to kill him. So in chapters 24 and 26, we get two pictures of opportunities where Saul is going to try to kill David, but Saul is going to fall right into David's lap. And David's going to have the power and the opportunity to kill him in that moment if he wants to. And he chooses instead to show mercy. In the middle of that story, we have an interaction between David and a man named Nabal, who David also was good to. David took care of his men. David watched over his land. And yet when he comes to Nabal to ask him for food for him and his men, Nabal refuses him and kind of just treats him like a jerk. So David, in that moment, also has an opportunity to attack Nabal for the wrong that he's done to him. And he almost does it, actually. But Nabal's wife, Abigail, convinces him against it, and once again, he shows mercy. So what we're going to see in these three chapters is a godly response to wrongdoing. When we live in this fallen world and others commit wrong against us, what does a godly response look like? And what I want to contend to you this morning is that by living for God's glory, trusting in God's judgment, and looking to God's reward, you can show mercy to those who wrong you. So let me pray for us, and then we'll get into the text. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look into your word together this morning. Um, Father, we uh, thank you that though we live in a fallen world, you're with us, you've spoken to us, and you've shown us a godly response to wrongdoing. I pray you would give us the power in this time to show mercy to those who have wronged us. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 24. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat underneath you or next to you. We're going to be on page 246 of those Bibles. When you get to 1 Samuel, we're in chapter 24. I'm going to start reading verses 1 through 7. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him, because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Okay, so here's David's opportunity, right? Saul's been pursuing him. Saul's been throwing spears at him, doing all kinds of wacky stuff. And now David and his men are hiding in a cave. And Saul comes in to, you know, use the restroom or whatever. And Saul's standing in front of him there. No idea that David is there. And David can take his shot if he wants it. So what should David do? What should he do in a situation like this when his enemy is helpless before him? He's got the power. How should he use it? Well, you can see the suggestion of his men. Um, His men say to him in verse 4, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. In a similar story, in chapter 26, verse 8, David's enemy, Saul, is similarly helpless. And this is what one of his men says to him. God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. The suggestion of the people around him is clear. This is your opportunity. The throne is yours. Take your shot. Let's kill this guy. Let's get rid of this enemy. You can kill him. It's even God who's giving you this opportunity. Let's take it. Kill him now. And what you'll find is, when you're the victim of wrongdoing, there's always going to be a message that you hear from the people around you. And the message is frequently, whether in actual conversations with people or just the message that you get from living in the world that we live in, you've got to get back at this person. You've got to stand up for yourself. You'll hear advice like, how are you going to let that person talk to you that way? Or they did what to you? Come on, don't, don't let them do that to you. You've got to let them know who you are. Let them know you're strong. Stand up for yourself. Insist on your rights. Don't be weak. That's the message that we get from the world around us. Don't be weak. Never be the loser. Never let someone treat you in a certain way and not let them know how you feel, not get back at them for it, not show them who's really boss here. Um, This can be especially powerful if you've played sports ever. Um, There's kind of that competitive thing where you never want to let someone beat you. I play basketball, uh, not particularly well, but I play. And I play on a Maniac Sport and Social team. And we were playing a game once, and I went to shoot a jump shot, and the guy fouled me. And he fouled me enough that I airballed the jump shot. I swear he really did foul me. It's not my airball. 
I shot it, air ball, whatever. The guy argues the call, of course. Uh, I said, oh, I didn't foul him, whatever. So I go on the free throw line, I get my shot, take my first free throw, and I air ball the first free throw. That means it doesn't hit the rim or the backboard or any part of the hoop. If you ever played basketball and you've airballed a free throw, there are a few things that can make you feel smaller in the world. It's called a free throw because nobody's guarding you. You're just standing there, and all you have to do is shoot directly at the hoop. Well, the guy who fouled me takes this as his, his opportunity to get a little jab in, and he says, see, look, I didn't foul him. That's just how he shoots. Oh, man. So now what voices am I hearing in my head? You just going to let him talk to you like that? You know, and I got all my friends here. I play on a team with my friends, you know, and the guys on the team. And it's like, this guy just totally showed you up. First of all, you embarrass yourself by airballing a free throw. Then this guy just dumps salt on the wound by calling you out for it. What are you going to do? Um, and the message is, you got to get back at him somehow, you know? And the way that normally goes down in a sporting event is next time he comes down the floor, I really foul him, you know? By God's grace, I restrained myself, but I can tell you the image going through my mind was not pretty, okay? I'm sitting there picturing myself with that basketball in my hand. He's about that far from me and just taking it right to his face, you know? But that's the, that's the feeling that you can get from the people around you. Never be weak. Never look weak in front of your friends. Show this guy who's strong in this situation. My wife's a, an art teacher, and she says that one of the biggest problems she has with a lot of her students is they cannot let an insult go. Someone else in one of their classes says something about them, and they catch wind of it. They've got to be back on it. They have to defend themselves. They can't be the weak one. And so what happens is these cycles of revenge just continue to get perpetuated because I'm not going to let you wrong me. I'm not going to be the weak one. I have to one-up you. And then the person comes back at you, and it never really ends. Um, when David's in this situation, he has the same temptation. And the people around him are saying the same thing. Prove yourself. Stand up for yourself. And what does he do? At first, in verse 5, he responds like many of us would. He starts by cutting off a corner of Saul's robe. Now, maybe not many of you would think of cutting off a corner of someone's robe. But this is a real diss, okay? Like, Saul's robe is a symbol of his kingship. Kings wear this robe. And so David is essentially making an assault on Saul's kingship. And you can see that David's a human, just like us. It's one of the beauties of the Bible. It doesn't paint the heroes of the faith as these guys who never did anything wrong. They're people, just like you and me. They're sinners. And David takes this first shot, but then something stops him. In verse 5, it says, And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off this corner of Saul's robe. And this is what he says to his men in verse 6. The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. David's love for his own glory, David's desire to defend himself, David's desire to see his name made great, is overcome by a love for a glory that's bigger than his. By a love for God's glory. In this situation with Saul, There is a real battle going on between David and Saul. But here we see that David acknowledges the bigger battle in that moment is the battle for David's heart. It's the battle for what is he going to worship in this moment when he's been wronged by Saul. And that's the battle in all of our conflicts. When you are wronged, the biggest battle going on is the battle for what you will worship. The battle for whose glory is going to be ultimate in the way you respond to this person. And could I just encourage you to stop and to ask yourself that question when you've been wronged? 
Next time your spouse does that thing that you hate or says that thing to you that you know just pushes your buttons and you're ready to unleash and let them have it back, stop and ask, whose glory is the biggest in my mind right now? Whose name am I trying to make great? For David, the ultimate glory, the name that he's trying to see made great is the Lord's name. And the unthinkable thing for him is not that he be weak and it's not that he lose. It's not that he look bad in front of his men. The unthinkable thing for him is that he should strike the Lord's anointed, that he should sin against God, that he should disobey the God that he serves. Look at what he says. He says, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. When you're in conflict, when you've been wronged, what's the thing about which you say, the Lord forbid that this should happen? The Lord forbid that they ever do this to me again. The Lord forbid that they not invite me to this thing and think that I'm going to keep hanging out with them. The Lord forbid that I be insulted and not get back at them. There's something bigger in every conflict than the conflict between you and this person. God's glory is bigger than this conflict, and God's glory is bigger than your glory. As you believe that, you're free to actually show mercy to the people who wrong you. Okay, so let's say you buy that. Let's say you say, God's glory is bigger. I can get on board with that. That's what we should live for. Maybe something you're wondering now, and something you've maybe been wondering since the beginning, is what about justice? See, sometimes we just think we've been wronged, but the person hasn't done anything wrong. In a fallen world, though, it's often the case that the thing the person has done to you is really wrong. And the key to showing mercy to someone is never minimizing that. It's never pretending, eh, no big deal, you know, people, you know everyone makes mistakes, why can't you? No, the things people have done are sometimes very wrong. So what about justice? Well, that brings us to our next point here, trusting in God's judgment. Let's look at verses 8 through 15 together of 1 Samuel chapter 24. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My lord the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against, the, against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. So the first thing to see here is that showing mercy to those who wrong us doesn't mean we never confront them. David does go and confront Saul. But the posture with which David does that, the attitude that he has and the words that he says show that he's not doing it to get retribution. He's not doing it to get revenge. You don't hear David saying things like, 
listen here, Saul. You're not the anointed king. I am. You better bow down and start worshiping me and cut this crap. You don't see David saying things like, how dare you? How dare you come after me with 3,000 men? I'm going to show you. Often when we confront people, it's basically just another way of getting revenge, you know, a nonviolent way of, I'm going to show you how wrong you are. I'm going to make sure you feel as bad as humanly possible so that we never restore this relationship. David's heart in this is very different. A godly response looks very different. It does confront, but it confronts for the sake of the other person and for the sake of the relationship. David's heart here is to actually restore his relationship with Saul, to bring them closer together. And so the things that he's pointing out to Saul, he needs to have this conversation with him if that's going to happen. Oftentimes, reconciliation is not possible if there's no confrontation. If David doesn't go to Saul and tell him, look, man, the advice you're getting sucks. I am actually for you, okay? I've actually, let me show you. I'll show you proof. I've got the corner of your robe here. I could have killed you. This is the proof that I didn't. I am for you. We're on the same team here. Let's be reconciled to one another. Stop listening to these people who are telling you to kill me. And notice the contrast there, right? David's told by all the people around him to kill Saul. He chooses not to do it. Meanwhile, Saul is totally controlled by the opinions of people around him who are telling him to go after David. So David does confront And showing mercy often will look like confrontation. But it looks like loving, how can we restore this relationship, confrontation. And not, let me make you feel as bad as possible so that you never wrong me again, type of confrontation. So one way that we seek justice is that we confront the wrong lovingly. So that the other person will see the error in what they're doing. And so that we can be restored in our relationship. But... This still leaves a huge issue for the justice question. How will those who have done wrong, how will wrongs be righted? How will wrongs be judged? And David cares about this too, but look at the way he handles it in verse 12. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. And in verse 15, really explicit, may the Lord therefore be judge. Justice matters. It's a real thing. But a godly response to wrongdoing ultimately entrusts the enacting of justice to the Lord himself. And this is where the rubber really meets the road for you if you're a Christian. Do you really believe that God is real and that he is a perfectly just judge? That he will actually do right in his judgment? And furthermore, Do you believe that his judgment on sin is enough? Or do you feel the need to add your judgment on top of it? Throughout the Bible, there's two main ways that God judges sin. One is that he judges sin in the person who has committed it. So for those who are unrepentant, who never come to faith in Christ, they will receive the judgment for their sin. Or, for those who do Christ, God actually removes the sin from that person and places it on Jesus. Such that when Jesus died on the cross, he was paying for their sins. And so in either case, sin receives the judgment that it deserves, either in Christ or in the person who committed it. And God, in all of his perfection, in all of his holiness, looks at that and says, that is enough. That is sufficient judgment for him. But if we look at that and we say, I understand that's how God judges sin, but that's not good enough for me. 
I also have to add my judgment. I also have to say these words to this person, or I also have to withhold my friendship from this person, or I also have to talk, to, talk about them behind their back to these other people, or I have to fight back at them. What we're essentially saying is that our standards are higher than God's himself. God says, I'm perfectly holy, and I'm satisfied with this judgment of sin. And we say, yeah, I know that satisfies your holiness, but I'm just a little holier, and I'm going to require a little more from this person. Not only are we saying we're holier than God, we're actually putting ourselves in his place. God is the only rightful judge over the universe. You are not. So David says, the Lord be judge. You do not have to care right all the wrongs. You are not the judge of the universe. God is, and he will judge with perfection. Now, um, this, this kind of brings up a question, and some of you may already be wondering it. If that's the case, if God's going to be the one who carries out justice, then who cares if justice is done here on earth, right? This was one of Karl Marx's objections to Christianity and to religion in general. He called it the opiate of the masses. You can see how a message like this could be used to go to oppressed people and say to them, don't fight for your rights. God will judge in the long run. Just, just keep letting yourself be, be trampled upon. That's not at all what this passage is saying. You can see that David actually, part of the strength in what David did is that he did confront Saul. We're not saying that wrongdoings get swept under the rug in the name of God's future justice. We're saying that because God is ultimately judge, I personally don't bear the ultimate burden of carrying out judgment in all my relationships. Consider the alternative. Let's say there is no judge in the future, that sin will never be judged. Then wrongdoing continues indefinitely. There's no hope for the future of the earth. Good and evil just continue side by side, and there's never actually a judgment on all the wrongdoings that are done. And then who feels ultimately responsible to take care of it when you're wronged? Ultimately, you do, because there's no one else out there who's the ultimate judge that can take that burden off of you. And so what happens is either you simply retaliate, and then we have this ongoing cycle of revenge and judgment that we see in things as small as high school classrooms to things as big as global-scale wars that perpetuate the cycle of revenge. Or we're infinitely angry whenever the judgments that are in place through the government and that kind of thing don't turn out for our favor. But knowing that the Lord is judge enables us to pursue justice in a loving way, in a way that seeks restoration of the relationship, in the way that David actually pursued Saul, not out of anger or out of retribution, but out of a desire to see the right thing done, out of a desire to see God glorified in this interaction. Because God is just, that's why we need just governments, good lawyers, Um, non-corrupt police officers, people who act with integrity, because those are one of the things God uses to bring about justice here on earth. But ultimately, we know that even when those things fail, even when there's corruption, even when the courts don't turn out the right decision, that it doesn't lay on me to go fix all that, that I don't have to seek revenge, but that I can trust that God is a just judge who will right all the wrongs. And you can trust that when you are wrong. Pursue reconciliation. Confront. If they broke the law, call the cops on them. Seek whatever legal means are available to you and seek to make the problems known for, the good of, for their good and for the good of the relationship. But you do not have to seek revenge. God is a just judge. He will right all the wrongs. But there's another side to judgment as well. Okay? David doesn't just say, the Lord judge you. David also says in verse 15, 
May the Lord be judged, give sense between me and you, and see to it and plead my cause, and deliver me from your hand. David is not only longing for Saul's sin to be judged, he's looking forward to the reward that he will receive in God's judgment. So this brings us to our last point, looking to God's reward. And you can turn with me to chapter 26. This is at the end of David's second interaction with Saul when he has an opportunity to kill him. We're going to conclude by looking at verses 23 and 24. This is what David says. He says, The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. See, part of the tension in David's interaction with Saul is not just that he's going to be avenging wrongdoing, but that he could be taking the throne for himself right now. What enables him not to do it? He has this confidence that his exaltation, when he's actually put on the throne, when he receives his reward, is to come in the future. Since he knows it's coming in the future, it's not something he has to grab for himself now by sinning against the Lord by disobeying him in his interaction with Saul and striking the Lord's anointed. He knows it's yet to come. And how does he know that? Two reasons. One, he was promised it when he was anointed by Samuel. So he's already been given God's promise that he will be king over Israel, and he's trusting in God's promise to him. And also, he says, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. He knows that in this particular interaction with Saul, He is the one who is behaving righteously. He is responding righteously to the wrong that Saul has done against him. And so he looks forward to this future promise that he will receive. But he knows, and this is so key to understand, this is a theme throughout the whole Bible. He knows that his exaltation only comes after suffering. Right now, David doesn't look like the king. David doesn't look like the anointed, exalted king over Israel. And yet he is. But he knows that that true exaltation, the realization of that, only comes after this time of suffering, of running from Saul. Not only has David been promised the throne after this time of suffering, but what we'll see later is that he's also promised that a son of his will reign on the throne in his place, and that his throne will be established forever, throughout all generations. And when Jesus Christ comes to earth, he is called the Son of David. He's seen as the one who's the ultimate fulfillment, who will sit on David's throne. Yet not only is he called the son of David, he's also called the son of God. Because he is God from all of eternity come as a human. And as God, he has been the recipient of more wrongdoing than any person ever will be. God created all things, including you and me. And we've all chosen to rebel against him and to run after something besides him, to give our ultimate allegiance to something else. And so God, throughout human history, has been on the other side of wrongdoing. He's been the recipient of all of our wrongs, and he had all the power to judge them. And yet when Jesus comes to earth, instead of coming as a conquering king, he comes as a suffering servant. Instead of coming to wipe out his enemies, he's born as a baby in a manger, and lives the first 30 years of his life as a carpenter. When he begins proclaiming the gospel, he's proclaiming good news that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, not God's judgment. 
when he's wronged throughout his life, when he's accused, he never retaliates. When he's trumped up on false charges, he doesn't respond by defending his own honor. And when he's on the cross and the people who put him there, the people that he came to save, are taunting him, he doesn't call down the armies of heaven against them to destroy them. He actually prays for their forgiveness to his father. He shows mercy every time to those who have wronged him. He shows mercy to you and to me, though we have wronged him throughout our lives. And on the other side of his suffering, on the other side of the cross, it's only after that that Jesus is exalted. As the reward for his obedience, as the reward for his righteousness, God resurrects him and gives him the name that is above all names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus has been exalted because of his righteousness. And the amazing thing is that that same promise that David trusted in, that his son would reign on the throne forever, that's the same promise you and I can trust in for our future. Is that if you've been united to Jesus through faith, if you've trusted in him, then you too will be exalted. Not because of your righteousness, but because of Jesus' righteousness. Because Jesus showed mercy when he was wronged, he was exalted. Such that if your trust is in him, though we failed to do so, you can know for your future that you will reign with Jesus for all of eternity. And he will be glorified in you. You have a reward that is coming because of Christ. Look to that reward. If your exaltation is coming, and it is sure, in whatever situation you're the victim of wrongdoing, you don't need to be exalted. It's coming. Your exaltation is coming, and it's because of Christ. It is secure in him. If you look like the loser now, if you look like the weak person because you showed mercy to the person who wronged you, no. The day is coming when you will be exalted because of Christ. So you have the freedom then. You have the freedom in every situation where you're wronged to live for God's glory and not for your own. You have the freedom to trust God's judgment and not have to carry it out yourself. And you have the freedom to look forward to a reward that is coming for you in Christ rather than seizing it right now by getting back at this person. So I just want to encourage you, if you're currently holding a grudge against someone, if you know that you're responding to evil with more evil, if you know that you've been wronged and you're planning your revenge in your mind or you're still getting it by withholding a relationship or talking about someone behind their back, Look to Jesus today. Look for his glory in this situation. Trust his judgment. Look forward to the reward that you have in Christ. What we're going to do now is respond to him in these next three songs by singing his praise for the mercy that he has shown to us. We're also going to take communion. We have two tables in the front, two in the back, and a gluten-free option in the back. When you tear off the bread... You're proclaiming the death of the Lord, that he did lay down his life for you. And when you dip it in the wine or in the juice, it's a symbol of his blood that was shed for you and the mercy that he showed to you. Talk to us. And I want to give you, encourage you that if that's you and if you're holding that grudge today, talk to, get prayer in the back. There's going to be people in the back who want to pray with you. You have my permission to text during the service. Text the person that you're in that conflict with and ask them if you can call them in an hour to talk to them about this. Take a step forward to show mercy to those who have wronged you because Jesus has shown mercy to you.